Hello and welcome to The Five By, the best board game podcast on the internet. Well, the shortest anyway. In this episode, John's telling us about Obscurio, Sarah covers the period game, Meeple Lady talks about Agricola, and I'm covering a card game called Schnapsen. But first, here's Luke to tell us all about Lords of Vegas. Monopoly is a terrible game, especially by modern standards. Even if you play with the correct but oft-omitted auction mechanism, it's still a six-hour, friendship-crushing, family-sundering hate fest. Add in the fact that Lizzie McGee's original version, The Landlord's Game, was designed specifically to educate royalty on the detrimental effects of monopolies and was subsequently stolen from her by an ethically bankrupt capitalist and sold to a corporation which grew to monolithic proportions on the foundation of that theft, and anything that might redeem the game just gets subsumed by the ick factor. Which is why, despite the easy shorthand, I refuse to use the frequent description Monopoly for Gamers to describe Lords of Vegas, a 2010 thematic property management game by Tack and Kill Dr. Lucky designer James Ernest and Wizards of the Coast alum Mike Selinker. And in truth, that Monopoly shorthand's not really accurate. While Lords of Vegas is definitely a property management game, it is basically the antithesis of an overlong, vapid, roll-and-move slog. Here's where I'm going to pause and make a radical declaration. Randomness is fun. I know that'll set me at odds with the determinists in the community, but I'll stand by that statement until my dying day. Employed properly, randomness can even be fun in large quantities. No, really, it's true. Lords of Vegas sets its property struggle against the backdrop of one of the most cutthroat and dynamic markets in the world, the casinos of the Vegas Strip. As its theme would naturally imply, Lords of Vegas employs a lot of random elements. Owned lots are determined by a card draw, and that same card draw determines what casinos will pay their shareholders each turn and which casino owners earn points. The deck from which these cards are drawn is the primary driver of the game, and being able to determine the odds of a favorable card appearing is the crux of managing a successful set of properties. Once players own lots on the board, they can build new casinos, add on to existing casinos, sprawl their casinos into adjacent unowned lots, remodel the casinos they own, reorganize any casino they have a stake in, or, as a last-ditch effort when the chips are down, gamble at an opponent's casino. Building is the most straightforward action in the game. Each empty lot has a die value on it, and a player can build on a lot they own by choosing a tile in one of the five colors corresponding to the different ownership groups and placing it on an empty lot with a die of their color in the middle set to whatever value was displayed on the empty lot. This number represents that player's stake in that casino, not only determining how much money they earn when their casino's color comes up in the card draw, but whoever owns the highest value die in a single casino is its owner. Casino owners can remodel a casino by changing its color, ideally to an ownership group with more cards still left to be drawn. Sprawling is a risky move. In an interesting twist, if you've sprawled your casino into an unowned empty lot, and that lot's card gets drawn by another player, that player just automatically takes over that space, booting you out of your own building. But the real fun of Lords of Vegas, the place where fortunes are made and lost, is in the reorganize and gamble actions. Let's say you have a stake in a casino with an opponent. You each have two dice in the building, but yours are of a lower value than your opponent's, making them the owner. By taking the reorganize action, all the dice in the casino, not just your own, are re-rolled, and if you can manage to get the highest value single die after the dust settles, you are now the owner of that casino, and only owners get points. If you're really in dire straits, or if you want to take a shot at knocking another player down a peg, you can go gamble at their casino. You make a bet, limited by the size of the casino and the owner's funds, and roll two dice using the odds of a field bet in craps. If you win, that opponent has to pay out the bet. If you lose, you pay. 
but in typical Vegas fashion, the odds are ever in the casino's favor. Without these random elements, Lords of Vegas would be, quite frankly, pretty boring. The core building mechanisms are very straightforward, but how players acquire new lots, get paid for their casinos, and can take risks on takeovers and gambles make this a rollicking joyride of a game. But the randomness is mitigatable, and the victory point track employs a stall mechanism where, at specific intervals of increasing frequency, a player has to score a specific number of points to advance. Score too few in one go and you're stuck, which drives players to control larger stakes as the game progresses. It has the weird effect of both preventing runaway leaders, unless someone gets really, really lucky or everyone else just plays bad, and pushing players into sometimes crazy risks. The standard colloquialism for a game with swings in fortune is to liken it to a pendulum, but I prefer to compare the careening reversals in Lords of Vegas to a steroid-augmented game of tetherball. And yet, with all that randomness, I've never played an unfun game of Lords of Vegas. While I've suffered the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, it's never felt uncontrolled or unmitigatable. For a player to truly screw me over, they have to take big risks and take advantage of my lack of preparation. If those two factors collide, the tetherball smashes me right in my stupid face. But more often than not, I can dodge, or even smash the ball right back when their gamble roll fails or I reorg and take over their largest casino. Yes, Lords of Vegas is a property management game, but it's about as far from Monopoly as a game can get in that category, which is to say it's actually fun. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming. So you thought it would be a good idea to sneak into what you and your wizard friends thought was an abandoned library and help yourself to a tome of ancient spells. Unfortunately, there's an evil sorcerer that's kinda sore about the whole stealing his rare and powerful fancy book of spells, and he set up various traps to stop you and your friends from escaping. To make matters worse, one of your wizard pals has been corrupted by the sorcerer and is actively trying to sabotage the team. Fortunately, the book you're sealing is determined to guide you out of this labyrinthian library. Obscurio is a visual clue interpretation game similar to Dixit and Mysterium. It's published by Libelud and designed by Latalier. It features wonderful art by Javier Colette and M81 Studio. In Obscurio, 2-8 players play as wizards with one player taking on the role of the Grimoire, giving out clues and guiding the wizard to the library's exit. A round in Obscuro has the Grimoire player drawing from an 84-card illusion deck that features whimsical, dreamlike imagery. This card then becomes the only exit that will allow the wizard players to progress to the next room. The Grimoire player draws two additional cards and places them on the desk, which is a board that looks like an open book. Now, the tricky part. The Grimoire player uses two butterfly markers to emphasize aspects on these two cards to guide the players toward the one true exit for the current round. These butterfly markers are magnetized and they stick to the cards on the board, allowing players to examine and pass around the desk. All wizard players, even the hidden trader, discuss and interpret what the Grimoire player is trying to tell them via the clue cards and butterfly markers. Once the wizard players have been given the opportunity to discuss the Grimoire's clues, they are asked to close their eyes. The trader, having been chosen at the beginning of the game through the traditional custom of being dealt a trader card, opens their eyes. The Grimoire player holds up a huge folder containing 8 illusion cards, each in its own numbered slot, and the trader signals which one or two cards are to be added to the possible exit options. The wizard then removes these cards, draws a few more cards from the illusion deck, creating a 6 card deck, which then gets shuffled. Each of these cards are then placed on the main board as the 6 possible exits. 
The wizard players then have a minute to consider the six magical doorways and select the one they each think is the real door based on the clues given by the grimoire player at the beginning of the round. The good news is that if any of the players selects the correct door, everyone moves on to the next room. Players who chose incorrectly take a cohesion token from the board and place it in their play area. Once a certain number of tokens are gone, players get to discuss and vote on who they think is the traitor. If the traitor is found out, the traitor no longer gets to choose doorways, but they are still able to influence the game by adding illusion cards to the available possible exits. If the traitor is not found out, the voting process is repeated and more cohesion tokens are lost. If the cohesion tokens are ever depleted, the wizards and the grimoire players lose and the traitor wins. The wizards win by making their way out of the library before losing all the available cohesion tokens. Wow, that's a lot of rules explanation for a review, but I wanted to give an accurate impression of how the game works. The traitor's ability to influence the game is really intriguing. Most games involving a hidden traitor often place too much emphasis on the traitor player having to be a competent liar. Often they are required to persuade other players to choose them for a mission, or convince them that they're on the same team, or to otherwise gain their confidence in some way. If you're like me and you tend to have a bad poker face and the mere thought of being the traitor gives you the giggles, then you probably don't like games with the traitor mechanic. What I feel is a saving grace for Obscurio and its traitor mechanic is that you don't really have to lie to be good at being the traditional board game traitor. Since the traitor in Obscurio doesn't get to see the exit card, they can just sit there with all the other wizards and interpret the cards. Sure, as a traitor you may offer alternative interpretations or you can agree with the group's interpretation at large, but you don't need to subvert this process. You can wait until all the other players have closed their eyes and the grimoire player presents you with that 8 card buffet of visions. And if the wizards have been talking about how the grimoire was pointing to a glowing orb, guess what, you should capitalize on that and then choose the cards that have glowing orbs or other round objects. Did the wizards convince themselves that the grimoire used the butterfly markers to point at certain colors? Choose the cards that have that same color. Once those cards are added to the deck containing the real exit, you're literally stacking the deck in your favor. I've been in games of Obscurio where the trader played off of the other wizards interpretation so well that every round was racked with difficult choices. For players that aren't that great at playing as a trader, the game's mechanisms help to balance what can be a difficult role. There's also traps that can be sprung as punishments for taking too long during the doorway selection phases. And this leads me to my only gripe about Obscurio. It's kinda hard to win as the wizards. The trader, the cohesion tokens that seem to run like water through a sieve, and the traps all make for a challenging experience. Luckily the game lets you scale the difficulty. So if you're into games like Mysterium and Dixit and are comfortable with hidden trader games and you love a good challenge, take a look at Obscurio. For the 5 by, I'm John Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. Let's connect on Twitter and Instagram where you can find me as Book of Nerds. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Schnapsen. In a return to form, I'd like to discuss at length an 18th century Austrian card game you've never heard of. Schnapsen is a two-handed game, full stop. It's not best at two or great for two players. This is a game for only two people to play against each other only. Two-player trick-taking games are a rare breed, and when you find one, you should hold on for dear life. See my piece on German Whist and the history of trick-taking games back in episode 47. But I'm being a little purposefully misleading here for the sake of a callback. Schnapsen uses trick-taking, but it's actually part of a family of card games known as marriage games, the reasons for which shall become clear shortly. First thing you need to know is that Schnapsen only uses 20 cards, the ace, ten, king, queen, and jack of all four suits. Now if you're cool, you'll play this with a German-suited deck, that's hearts, bells, acorns, and leaves. German cards typically only run from seven to ace, though confusingly in the 16th century, 
The two in the ace got combined, and they're called ace and deuce interchangeably, and sometimes they have a pig on them, and so they're also called the sow. And don't let this freak you out, just accept it if you buy a scat or other German-suited deck. They also don't have queens or jacks, but instead an ober and unter, uh, basically two military officers of different ranks, uh, a major and a sergeant, or what have you. And this gets extra weird when you consider that the game like Schnapsen relies on the concept of extra points for a royal couple in your hand, which of course only makes sense with a French-suited deck, but don't worry about it. Of course you don't need to play Schnapsen with a German-suited deck, but you should own at least one if you're into card games because they're super cool. They're also bigger than a standard poker deck, closer to tarot size. At some point in the future, I'll cover a Latin American card game, and we can talk about Spanish-suited decks, which is clubs, coins, cups, and swords. So anyway, Schnapsen. Right up front, I'm going to tell you that the strategy here is going to feel incredibly oblique until you've played... a hundred hands or so? I suggest you do this online against any of the exceptionally good AI versions, which I'll link in the show notes. Now, if you forget, or are lazy, I guess, you can just Google Play Schnapsen Online. There's also a very good iPhone app you can download. Schnapsen can be oblique to new players because it's unlike other card games you're already familiar with. So first of all, you need to wrap your head around the card ranking. In order from high to low, it's Ace, 10, King, Queen, Jack. If you're using German-suited cards, that's Ace, 10, King, Over, Under. You'll also need to fix in your mind that winning tricks isn't necessarily the goal as it often is in other trick-taking games. Each hand you're dealt four cards, with one card showing the trump suit slipped under the talon, that's the other 12 cards left to draw. Aces are worth 11, 10s are worth 10, kings, queens, and jacks are worth 4, 3, and 2 respectively. A marriage, or leading the king or queen with its suited counterpart in your hand, is worth 20 points, but a royal marriage of the trump pair is worth 40. If it's your turn to lead and you have the jack of the trump suit, you can swap it for the other face-up trump card before you play. While the talon is open, you don't have to follow suit, but once the cards run out or a player decides to close the stack, you must follow suit. Okay, got that? Is that clear? Not really? Yeah, it's weird, huh? So, look, closing the stack is a really big deal in Schnapsen, and getting good at deciding when to do it is really important. Depending on your hand, you may want to close the stack as early as possible if you think you can run the table and get to 66 points before your opponent. But beware, closing the stack has risks. You're playing a full game to seven marks over the course of several hands, and a failed close, that is if you choose to close the stack but fail to win the hand, gives your opponent the marks instead. Now, there's a whole separate segment to be done on metagame and strategy in Schnapsen, but you're not going to understand it because you haven't played the damn thing and it would just be confusing anyway. There's some other games in the marriage family too, notably something known as either Schnapps or 66, which is basically the same game as Schnapsen, but with the nines added back in. And this is even more incredibly confusing, because the 9 becomes the lowest card, but are worth no points. You also can't score marriages after the stack is closed. 66 seems like a near-identical variant of Schnapsen, but in practice they play out very differently. Schnapsen and 66 are also related to Bezique, a French two-player ace-10 game. That's any game where the ace and 10 are ranked higher than the court, as well as Pinochle, which you may have actually played. Pinochle itself is a whole different subject for a future card game history dive when we'll get into double decks. If you're ever looking for a good three-handed card game, even more rare than two-player games, Mariash is the most popular game amongst the Czech and Slovakian communities. In Mariash, players choose contracts instead of bidding points, and the highest contract bid plays against the other two opponents. Really interesting stuff, and I'd love to dig more into it, but I don't know anyone I could find to play against regularly. So after you've played your hundred or so hands of Schnapsen online, you should be ready to teach your regular card game partner. Anyone who you play cribbage with should be able to get the hang of things after a few hands. So, who should play Schnapsen? People who have the patience to play multiple hands of a card game. People who like two-player trick-taking games. People who like cribbage. And people who are stuck somewhere with an incomplete deck of cards. 
I give Schnapsen 66 out of 66 excuses to buy a deck of German-suited Piotnik brand playing cards from Austria. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. The period game, as you might guess, is a game about periods. Not the punctuation kind, the menstruation kind. According to designers Daniela Gilsons and Ryan Murphy, the period game strives to turn a typically uneasy situation into a fun, positive learning experience. Back in my day, stigma-free, accurate information about periods was basically not available. I really want to see kids today have an easier time of learning about periods, and I love that the period game is there to provide that for them. The period game was self-published in 2019, and the first thing you notice about the game is the adorable 3D plastic model of ovaries in the middle of the board. Really, they're adorable. Go to the website, periodgame.com. There's a picture. The simple, colorfully designed board and cards also have visual appeal, and the player tokens are teeny little period products. Tampon, pad, panty liner. This game is cute. Gameplay is very simple, with only a small one sheet of rules. To move, you twist one of the plastic ovaries until a colored marble pops out of the bottom. If the marble is clear, move forward one space. If the marble is red, jump to the next period space. If the marble is purple, oops, you leaked. Go to the nurse's office and lose a turn. While I love the use of marbles, I do wish the colors were better differentiated. The purple and red marbles look very similar to me. Even in bright light, we often had to hold them up to be sure which one we'd drawn. Whenever you land on a period space, you have to play a protection card from your hand. These have pictures of different types of period products. If you don't have a protection card, you also have to go to the nurse's office, which is a little area just outside each period space. Lose a turn is a hated mechanism with good reason, but since going to the nurse's office usually involves jumping ahead, I usually don't mind when it happens in the period game. Most other spaces on the board just let you draw a card, but there are also PMS spaces, which name a PMS symptom like headaches or acne. When you land there, you have to play a PMS card from your hand, which describes something you might do to alleviate PMS. These are tips like use a heating pad for cramps or talk to a friend if you're feeling bad. If you don't have a PMS card, you have to discard your hand and draw three new cards. And that's basically it. There are a few pink cards with special actions, like the extra undies card, which lets you get out of the nurse's office without losing a turn. But for the most part, gameplay is draw a marble, move forward, whoever gets to the finish line first wins. I don't like to go through the rules of a game in detail during a review, but these rules are so simple that it's hard to describe the period game without doing so. I've played the period game with adults and with kids. The best game I've had was with a group of girls. One was eight and the other two were 11. And beforehand, I thought the eight-year-old might be a little bored. I mean, periods aren't really a going concern yet when you're eight and I hoped the 11-year-olds would be interested. Well, it didn't quite turn out like that. We made the mistake of playing in our friendly local game store, where there were other people, and as it was a game store, all those other people were men. The 11-year-olds were very embarrassed. No one was looking at us or anything, but one of the girls would literally hide under the table whenever anyone walked by. I did get the sense that they were enjoying the game, that at least some of the embarrassment was performative, it was like they needed to make this show of squirming and giggling in order to participate. They said later that they wanted to play it again, but at home. I should have known not to play with them in a public place. On the other hand, the eight-year-old, who I didn't think was going to be into the period game, was actually really into it. The gameplay was at her level, so she could enjoy it as a game, and she was interested in the topic. 
She asks lots of questions, including holding up the player token of a tiny little menstrual cup and asking me what it was for, which, by the way, explaining what a menstrual cup is in the middle of a game store was something I never expected to be doing. So thank you, Period Game, for giving me a novel experience. In any case, the eight-year-old asks questions throughout the game about information on cards, about the tokens, and even about how my experience is related to information being presented in the game. She even got into playing the game in a thematic way. For example, there's a PMS space labeled Fatigue. She didn't know what that meant, and when her sister told her it means you're tired, she replied, then I should play this, and slapped down a card that said, get a good night's rest. It was awesome. Exactly the kind of interaction I was hoping we'd have with the period game. Learning and talking about periods and having fun. Now, would I sit down and play the period game with adults at a game night? I would not. The game is way too simple. There's essentially no strategy. Once the novelty of twisting the giant ovaries to get a marble wore off, it wouldn't hold up as a game for adults. But that's not what the period game is for. It's a teaching tool, and it's a good one. I'd play it again anytime with young people who are going to start having periods and need to learn more about it. Heck, I learned some things from the period game. And that's the period game. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you have any great stories about how to teach kids about periods. Then I really want to hear from you. You've heard all those jokes about the game affectionately, or maybe not so affectionately, dubbed as Misery Farm. But is it as miserable as people say it is? Yes, it's kind of brutal. Yes, it can be miserable. But it's timeless, and you're a quintessential Euro worker placement. It also deserves some respect, as it has influenced so many that came after it. And it will always be a game that is welcome at my table. Welcome to Agricola, where your farm animals roam, and you work really, really freaking hard at feeding your family. Released in 2007 and first published by Lookout Games, Agricola is your typical worker placement Euro board game. The game is designed by Uwe Rosenberg and went on to win the Spiel des Jahres in 2008. Future editions include versions published by Z-Man Games and then Mayfair in 2016, which only plays one to four players instead of the original one to five. It has also spawned off Agricola, All Creatures Big and Small, the two player simplified version of this game. Also a great 2P in my opinion. Anyway, let's get back to your farm. It's 1670 AD in Central Europe and families are surviving by plowing their fields, harvesting their crops, breeding their animals, and improving their living quarters and making babies to also work the fields. Agricola plays through 14 rounds, and each player starts with two actions each. At the start of a new round, an additional action space is revealed. I particularly love how this game unfolds and allows players to ease into it, instead of giving them like 40 action options from the get-go. Ahem, a feast for Odin. Players in the beginning are often collecting resources to build out their fenced-in pastures, add bedrooms to their hut, or plowing fields and sowing seeds into them to later reap during the harvest. When a player moves their action disc to an available location, they pick up the resources sitting there or do exactly what the action spot tells them to do. Easy peasy. Until you realize that in addition to collecting all these resources, you must also feed your workers during the harvest, which first comes after the first four rounds. But as the game continues, that harvest creeps up sooner and sooner until round 14, the final round, where you only have one action round until you have to feed your people, and then the game ends. 
The harvest is actually a three-part step in which your crops first come off of your field, then you feed your people, and then your animals breed. If you have at least two of one type of animal, you get exactly one new baby animal, if you have room for it. The feeding aspect of Agricola is the part that can be brutal for folks. And if you don't get your food-making engine going, you'll start receiving negative begging points and or you won't be able to grow your family to take more actions. Doing family growth and having babies will provide you with more actions each round, which is very, very helpful. But then you'll also have more mouths to feed. You'll also probably need an oven to convert your animals into food. You just can't eat them. We are a civilized people after all. There are no surprises in Agricola. Within each set of rounds, before a harvest, you'll know which cards will eventually come up because they're printed on the player aid. Another major component of Agricola is the occupations and the minor improvements. Players are dealt seven cards of each type at the start of the game, and then they draft cards among themselves until they have their starting hand. By drafting, I mean picking one card and then handing the rest of the hand to the player to the left and so forth. These can be powerful and depending on the right combination can really help you build your strategy out. Like with everything in this game, you have to place one of your workers on an action spot that will allow you to play one of these cards. But this can totally add a huge chunk of time to gameplay, so you can always opt not to do it. Or you can just use the cards that were dealt to you at the start of the game. Another option is foregoing these cards entirely and just playing Agricola as a family game. The family game is actually how I like to introduce new gamers to the worker placement mechanism. These are all solid options that are included inside the game. So now you've survived 14 rounds and it's time for final scoring. You get scored based on how many family members you have, if you've upgraded your hot rooms, how many animals you have, and if you have each type how many fenced pastures you have, how many wheat and vegetables you have, and most importantly, you get negative points for each plot of land that's unused on your player board, as well as any beggar cards you have if you didn't manage to feed your family during a harvest. Agricola is a charming worker placement about building out your family farm. Just make sure your family doesn't starve and life won't be so miserable. And that's Agricola! This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. You've been listening to the 5 by, your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or visit our website at 5bygames.com. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash 5bygames. From all of us at the 5 by, thanks for listening. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.